Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this episode of Fraudology. I have been having so much fun recording this and hearing from you guys and just being on a podcast again. It's been fun for me. It's fun to have an outlet to talk about fraud in a way that I know gets out to a lot of people. I talk about fraud all day, every day, but this is a little bit different, and so I enjoy it. Last week's episode, I've received so many comments and messages and emails and texts about it about my interview with Alexander Hall, and I'm so glad that all of you found him equally as interesting as I do. I hope you're all following him on LinkedIn, and if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I highly recommend it. I also have another great interview to share with you on this episode with Eric Rainsberg, who is not only a leader in fraud fighting, but also a friend of mine. So I'm excited for you guys to hear that and to hear what you have to say about it afterwards. Social media, especially LinkedIn, provides such an awesome feedback loop, and I really appreciate that. But I wanted to start out with a What the Fraud segment. We haven't had that in a few weeks, and there is definitely a timely one that I want to talk about. And no, it has nothing to do with politics. (laughs) I feel like everyone talking about fraud right now is talking about politics, and I'm just not going there. Also, because I know we have a lot of international listeners and, you know, you hear enough about American politics. So (laughs) now this what the fraud segment is timely because it's talking about refund fraud. And this is something that I have talked about on previous podcast episodes, as well as a lot on LinkedIn and in my public speaking presentations as well at the National Retail Federation. I've done a webinar for cardnotpresent.com, as well as an interview for ISMG's new fraudtoday.io website. Really, I'll also be talking about it at FraudCon on October 21st. So a lot of different ways. Each presentation is a little bit different so that it's not the same. Honestly, actually, the one at FrogCon is going to be completely different because they've asked me to tell the story about how I discovered this fraud um, and discovered that it is fraud and how different it is, et cetera, and kind of talk about how I uncovered it and put all the pieces together. I should say I didn't discover refund fraud. I think really I put two and two together and started sharing that news and information with the merchant side. I don't want to take credit for discovering something that existed long before I knew about it, but it's kind of like a doctor or a surgeon that discovers a new disease That disease always existed, but the doctors didn't know about it. Uh, And you don't know how to treat something until you discover the problem. So 
All that to say, this is about refund fraud, but in a unique way. So a lot of times merchants will ask me if refund fraud depends on or really is dependent on a customer service agent being corrupted or, you know, internal abuse, basically. And it can. There are definitely inside men in quotation marks. I'm sure there are some inside women as well at some retailers, but for the most part, based on the dark web intelligence, as well as, you know, those communities that Chase Park monitors so closely of the refunders, a lot of them are doing it on their own, independent of any inside help, because they really do understand your policies and processes very well as a customer, uh, as well as like Brett Johnson used to say on the online broadcast, the only people that read the terms of service and policies are fraudsters or lawyers. And of course, he'd always, you know, compare the two. <laughs> um, but it's true. So they learn about your policies. They also have conversations with your customer service and ask, you know, hey, if I buy this really expensive item, can I return it? What happens if it doesn't show up? Like those kind of things, as well as trial and error. So that's really how the majority of them are done. However, that's not to say that there aren't sometimes inside men. And in this case, there was an article that came out that several people sent over to me, which I was grateful for on Monday of this week, because I was actually really busy with meetings, etc. I don't know if I would have seen it otherwise. But the headline is that Amazon employee is arrested and charged with issuing over $96,500 in fake refunds. And the employee's name uh, was Vaughn Nguyen, or is, I guess. And he worked at Amazon for about a year. He started working there in March of 2019, and he resigned in March 2020 when there were a lot of questions being asked to him of his activity just to explain it, and he stopped showing up for work. So that's kind of a sign, right, that somebody's guilty. <laughs> uh, guilty people don't, yeah, well, I should say innocent people don't, you know, don't skip work. <laughs> or don't quit their jobs when questions are being asked. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so here's kind of how it worked. I've read the article as well as I've looked at the actual complaint from the FBI and the Department of Justice. So basically, in the span of four months from November 2019 to February 2020, this agent, he was a selling support associate out of Tempe, Arizona, and he really was responsible for supporting third-party sellers. Well, he actually had his own third-party seller accounts. Uh, how convenient. I feel like that's a huge conflict of interest, especially because they're given what the, it's called a spoofing account to be able to go in and help third-party sellers with their accounts, whether that's issuing a refund to a customer or taking down an item that shouldn't be sold by a third-party seller, all kinds of things. He also created multiple buyer accounts and he shipped the items from Amazon to his house as well as people's houses that he's connected to. According to the complaint, the FBI identified the addresses as one at his ex-girlfriend's house, another at his parents' house. So I thought that this may have been a case of him helping professional refunders doing this and getting a kickback. But no, he orchestrated this himself. So he performed illegitimate refunds for associates, but it looks like it's actually the people in his life. So I, I don't know if he actually did. Now that I've read the complaint, I think those eight buyer accounts are the ones that are pretty heavy in the refunds. So Amazon, like most companies, the only times they really allow refunds without returns is if a product's never arrived or arrived damaged or inoperable. 
and Amazon calls these concessions. This guy issued 318 concession refunds in four months, and that totaled just a little over $96,500. So none of the refunds were at the request of the customer because he was the customer. He created spoofed accounts. So he performed the refunds with his employee access. So, you know, kudos to Amazon really for catching this, for tracking the refunds per associate, as well as for making this public, for pursuing prosecution. I think there are, I know there are a lot of large online companies that choose not to prosecute, whether it's internal theft or the people who target them with credit card fraud or account takeovers or any other abuse. They choose not to because they don't want it in a headline that their company has abuse or fraud. But the more we can normalize it, the more companies can say, yeah, we all have fraud and here's what we're doing about it. That actually makes you a leader in the space. Several years ago, I mean, I still work with them. But several years ago, I worked closely with the heads of trust and safety for one of the largest event ticketing um, marketplaces. There's several online you know, ticketing marketplaces now, but they were really a target because event tickets, concert tickets, you know, uh, sporting events tickets, they're very uh, lucrative and expensive and the price goes up quite a bit. And so, of course, people targeted them for fraud on both the buyer and the seller side. And the leader of that department chose to create an investigations department. And this was to perform after transaction investigations. So most of the time, online fraud prevention is really just focused at the time of transaction. It's almost like whack-a-mole. It's like we're just going to try to prevent as many of these fraud orders as possible from coming into our ecosystem at all. That is the absolute best practice so that you ensure that your company doesn't lose a ton of money or as much money as they could if no one was manning that ship. But there's also the things that go through, or to be honest, in the US anyways, attempts are actually add up to towards a felony. So if someone ran a credit card for $1,000 10 times, but all 10 times those were declined either by the bank or the merchant, they still committed $10,000 worth of attempted theft to your company that can be prosecuted. But I would say the majority of online companies don't do this. And a lot of it's because a lot of companies have a hard time understanding, well, what's our return on investment? Like, we're probably not going to get that money back. And even if we do prosecute and do federal law enforcement agencies have the bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is probably an entire podcast episode at some point and should be. And actually, I know some great people to interview about it. But they established this investigations unit for this online company And they cracked down hard on some big rings and they made sure that the media knew about it. It was all over the place. And that was extremely smart. And I think it was for the same reason Amazon's doing this as well. And that is it's essentially like the online version of a sticker in the dressing room saying we will prosecute offenders. Uh, We will prosecute those that shoplift. You're telling the fraudsters or people who are thinking about committing crimes or who have committed crimes against your company, hey, watch out, we're going to catch you. And those articles spread like wildfire in the fraudster community. And they really do say, hey, stay away from these guys because they're starting to investigate. So there is some merit to that. There's a whole lot 
around jurisdiction and the best way to do that, et cetera. So like I said, whole other podcast episode, but I think it was very smart of Amazon, especially because they have so many employees, they really can't have oversight over all of them. So they essentially made an example out of this guy. And as they should have, while he was being paid and on the clock, he stole almost $100,000 worth of you know items from them. So of course they should. But I would imagine if they have other employees, whether they're in the warehouse or in finance who are thinking about embezzling or stealing in some way, they're probably going to think twice now. A couple more things to add about this guy. This wasn't his first or last fraud either. He was actually being investigated for securities fraud, and he was brought in by the FBI to be interviewed while he was committing this fraud. And they gave him a chance. They asked him if he was doing anything else that was illegal, and he said no. So they're hitting him probably twice as hard as they would have had he copped to it or stopped after they asked him. Instead, he just continued and actually upped it even after that interview. He also placed a order for $47 on his ex-girlfriend's credit card on one of those eight accounts. And they're considering that aggravated identity theft, uh, which I think is amazing. However, I know there's a lot of people thinking seriously, I submitted, you know, a million dollar case to law enforcement seven months ago, and they haven't done anything. I know, I know it really, it's so subjective and depends on a lot of incidents. But I will say the FBI agent that investigated this was very thorough and I'm very impressed with him. So after he and his ex-girlfriend broke up, he also opened credit card accounts in her name because he had all of her information from dating for three years. So uh, this guy, this was not the first or last time. So actually also by Amazon making this public and prosecuting who knows how much more dollars and fraud he would have kept doing in in various scams and schemes had he not been caught. So that is just another reason why I think it's important. But I really applaud Amazon in this case for doing that. And here's one more thing I want to say as far as refunding goes. Amazon was the first target of this several years ago, and they've done a lot of policy changes as well as internal technology changes to really be on top of it now. And now it's a lot harder for people to get refunds without returning items to Amazon. If you're a customer, you know that they used to give provisional refunds before you'd send the item. Now they don't do that. And they try to just give you a credit. And I don't know, I had to return an instant pot that we ordered a couple months ago. And I realized, man, they're really, you know, it's a little bit different to return something than it used to be. But I also understand why. And it's not so much that I'm not going to shop with them again. It's just I notice those things because of what I do for a living and for fun. Let's be honest. It's both fun and my living, which I'm grateful for. But uh, also, I think qualifies me for super nerd status. (laughs) That's okay. I own that with pride. (laughs) But they've really kind of gone through a uh, metamorphosis as far as how they're targeted with refund fraud. So, you know, really the fraudsters and anyone trying to take advantage of a system are going to go with the path of least resistance always. And so if the easiest thing to do with your company is to claim that an item didn't arrive, that's what they're going to do all day, every day until you start putting in restrictions. And then they're going to move to the harder methods of refunding to catch, which goes all the way up to faking a tracking ID. And those are getting harder and harder for Merch, uh, honestly, they're almost impossible for merchants to catch. Uh, though 
Chase and I have system and all that. And we provide information to retailers that we're working with to help them identify those and be able to track them. And also we have identified some things that uh, really can be put into place for preventative measures for those. But I guess what I'm saying is just, you know, they go the path of least resistance. So know that. And the final step really is if they can't go through your system as easily as they used to, but they still have customers, their customers, but kind of yours too, at least they look like customers in your system, uh, wanting items from your company, especially if you are a company that, you know, you're the only company that a certain item can be purchased on, like brand names or luxury items, et cetera. They will try to recruit customer support agents to work for them. I mean, especially with the way the economy is, I can just see a few customer support agents getting LinkedIn messages saying, hey, do you want to make an extra, you know, whatever it is? Some might say yes. So I think that's something for merchants to be aware of that that can happen and that that is a form of refunding. So with all that said, that was a lot of information for our What the Fraud segment today, but I thought that this was a really good example. And honestly, it's one of the first times I've actually seen refund fraud really addressed in articles. I'm going to post the article as well as the original complaint from the DOJ in the show notes because I know that, you know, we all like to learn more. It, it is kind of fascinating about how they work that out, as well as the fact that they constituted the... um fraudulent refunds as wire fraud, which I thought was really fascinating as well. So anyway, I'll put those in the show notes. And with that, we're going to come back with my amazing interview with Eric Rainsberg in just a, a minute or two. 2020 is the year of a lot of things, but on a high note, it's a year of really high e-commerce growth for, you know, reasons due to the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic, more customers than ever are moving to online commerce. And maybe some of them shopped at one specific store or, you know, would book travel online, but never would buy their groceries online. Now they're doing everything online. And that's amazing for those of us that are in the e-commerce space. But it's also important to keep in mind that with growth comes a need for protection but that you really can balance both. It's always about the balance of having a great user experience and enabling sales and enabling growth for new customers, but also protecting your company and your customers. And that's where SIFT comes in. They have a huge focus on trust and safety. They see trust and safety as more than just fraud prevention. They also see it as helping your company enable sales, helping your company understand that you're not just looking at protecting fraud, you're looking at protecting the accounts as well as your customers and really having a holistic approach to brand protection. So SIFT does that by adopting a trust and safety approach with four different parameters. One is to stop fraud losses proactively when you're able to identify fraud more easily with machine learning, you can block the fraudsters proactively before the point of transaction to prevent both chargeback fees and inventory shrinkage. Also, it's important to streamline operations. Manual review is accurate, but it comes at a cost. You can ensure that orders from trusted users are approved faster and resources aren't wasted clearing those review cases of fraud. Automate more actions, reduce manual review volume, and get more insight into your business. Also, this is a big one, especially, like I said, working with other teams, 
When you can show them that you're focused on increasing sales and conversion, they kind of stop thinking of you as sales prevention. So the way that you can help increase sales and conversion is by unlocking growth opportunities without increasing risk exposure by adopting a holistic view of the customer journey and identifying legitimate users with pinpoint accuracy. And for protect user accounts, fraudsters are looking to cash out on targeting the financial value and personal information stored in your user accounts and loyalty programs. We know that air miles and loyalty points you know, can be cashed out for cash or trips or all kinds of stuff. They have financial value. And especially with companies that have needed to provide provisional credits, store credits to their users, because of the impacts of COVID, I, I'm thinking specifically of travel and ticketing, but I know there are other companies that have had to do this too. I'm really concerned that this is going to be a point of account takeover at some point in the next year, especially when business goes back to usual, whatever usual is now. <laughs> but it's important to protect your users and your brand by defending against account takeover attacks and automatically surfacing suspicious sessions for additional levels of verification. So I really think it's important to check out SIFT, especially if you have these concerns or you want to learn more about how you can do one of these four things, but aren't exactly sure how. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, SIFT has set up a website for Fraudology listeners to learn more about them. And also they just have great education. Beyond sales, I just, I think that SIFT is so good at providing really independent and accurate information. And unfortunately, I can't say that about every vendor blog in our space. I wish I could, but I can't. So go to www.sift.com forward slash fraudology for more information about SIFT as well as some great educational information. As I've said previously in other episodes, one of my favorite things about starting this podcast was getting to introduce all of you to people who I just think are rock stars in this industry. Because of my position and, and because I own my own business, I have to kind of be out in the spotlight. But I don't believe I should be alone. There are lots of rock stars in this space who I learn from every day. And one of those is Eric Rainsberg. Eric is the Director of Fraud Strategy and Analytics at Macy's. He's been at Macy's for nine years. And prior to that, he was at Fifth Third Bank in merchant processing. So you've been in fraud for well over 15 years, right, Eric? Yeah, yeah. I always say I actually started in college. I actually started in asset protection, chasing down criminals. So, you know, chasing them down, stopping shoplifters, performing internals, and it just kind of turned from there. I think that's when I got the bug. It was from day one, you know, didn't go to school for this, but it came out of school wanting to do it. That is exactly, I think a lot of us have gotten the bug. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good bug to have, especially during yeah. the international pandemic. Let's, you know, <laughs> clarify this is a good one. <laughs> so I'm just really grateful that you are willing to do this because you are someone who I think of as a leader in the retail fraud space and uh, who I go to quite often when I have questions from other retailers or want to understand what's going on in retail. You're an active participant in the retailer group, the biweekly group that we started at the beginning of COVID to really understand this refunding fraud issue. You've 
spoken at conferences that I've previously organized. Like we've been buddies for several years and I'm, I'm very grateful for that, but I think very highly of you. So I'm glad that you are going to be sharing some of your wisdom with Broadology listeners today. Appreciate that. Hopefully I live up to, to oh. the intro we just got. <laughs> <laughs> you most definitely will and you will exceed it for sure. So you kind of already answered it. And I think that's really fun that you started in the asset protection side in person. A lot of people don't do that, but I think that's, eh, I shouldn't say a lot, but you know, there's some people in fraud with law enforcement background, others, you know, we come from all over, but once you got the bug, how did you really go through your career? How did you get started and how did you make the decisions that you did to put you in the positions that you've been in? Yeah, so I did uh, asset protection for a few years while in school. And once I got out, an opportunity opened up, uh, like you said, at Fifth Third, uh, their processing wing, doing card fraud analysis or analytics for financial institutions. So I really started on the banking side when it came to that. They had you know X number of banks that they supported and did the screening for them. So I worked uh, on that team and, and worked very closely with uh, a lot of the people doing the rule development and doing some of the stuff that you know now that I see is very interesting. But at the time, I was just learning how it works and learning a lot about how fraud works. Then interestingly, to me at least, I was able to go on the merchant side of things and get exposure to kind of the flip side of the coin and even working more on project management as merchants were changing the ways that they process credit card transactions. One of my roles was running that project. So I learned a lot about the authorizations process. I learned about settlement. And it's not completely applicable to fraud, but you know, I, I think I can rely on my understanding of how a card transaction goes to talk through some of these processes that we have here and help diagnose some potential issues or, or just diagnose things that we may see that are, are a little out of the ordinary. And then after that, I worked in the Macy's and was able to get on their fraud team. And, and I've spent nine years at Macy's and about eight in fraud. And, and the one year I wasn't, I was actually working on chip cards, which was helping fraud. So basically been, been in fraud and processing since I got out of school. That's awesome. That's very similar to my background as well. I started on the merchant processing side working for a processor that did the transaction screening for banks mm -hmm. as well. And I got the Silicon Valley bank portfolio. So got thrown into online. I'm pretty sure it's because I was the youngest on the team and I <laughs> understood how the internet worked, but because <laughs> it was the early 2000s. <laughs> Everyone else was still working on card present fraud analysis. And that was considerably easier at the yeah. time anyway. I mean, you and I started around the same time. There wasn't the technology that existed. There wasn't PCI. You guys probably also had like huge stacks of reports with full card numbers on it all over the place, at least. We don't talk about those in the past. <laughs> <laughs> it was like that, but we didn't know what we know now, right? Well, exactly. I mean, gosh, yeah. I think the statute of limitations is up on that for our <laughs> employers, especially since there was no crime being done because there was no program yet. But yeah, I remember trying to implement BCI and I was like, this makes sense, but it's a pain. <laughs> but I will say that there's something to be said about coming from that side of the fence to the merchant side. I think that you have a greater understanding of the whole payment life cycle. When you're able to reduce fraud or reduce chargebacks without any customer information, you know, but looking at the data and looking at the analytics and providing advice to merchants. Uh, is a very transferable skill when you go to the merchant side and you do have the customer information. Yeah, I think that also taught me transitioning from financial institutions to merchant more around just general data analytics. You know, in the, in the financial institution world, one of the huge benefits you had is you could almost follow a customer through their day. You know, one of the things I love to show as I was training people 
what was almost trying to diagnose what that person was going through. You know, there are people that were, you know, buying up stuff for their wedding. You know, they were purchasing tickets and then going to the tuck shop and then flowers. Like, oh, you can see they're progressing through this path. So it was interesting to get that life cycle of a customer. And it was easy to see those outliers because they were outside of that. The merchant world, you get the benefit of getting all this additional data, especially on the online world where you can see what device they're using, shipping and billing addresses, which don't feed all the way down to the institution. It's a different view, but I think it tells you that analytics is important. And, and, and if you get to different views of data, I think looking at it from that perspective, but applying it differently and, and knowing how to apply your analytical skills to different perspectives can make you as effective on both sides. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, I mean, obviously... There's that saying that data doesn't lie, but people do. But I really believe that as well. And I think that's probably a product of us being in e-commerce, right? Because one of the successes or one of the real foundational important things in almost all department within e-commerce is analytics. What is the data saying? What is the data telling us? But I, I couldn't agree more that it can really be important, especially in fraud prevention. And I've seen you really use that data. And I think also something that you and I have in common, and I think a lot of people in fraud have in common as well, is the ability to nerd out on the data and really Mm -hmm. like dive in, but then also apply it to the real world and be able to have conversations with others to explain what the data is. I think, you know, there are a lot of departments where maybe you just have people who, you know, nerd out on the data, but don't know how to explain it. And yeah, so that's I mean, really where the strategy part comes in. <laughs> that, that's exactly what, what I, I see. One of my primary roles in strategy is, is that translation. I love the data. I love getting into the data, but understanding it, analyzing it, and having this conclusion does nothing unless you can tell the right people what it means and what actions you need from them. Oh my gosh, 100%. And that's my favorite thing to do. Take the data, transition it into strategy. And I think, you know, operations is equally important within an organization as far as, you know, doing broad operations and looking at the day-to-day and the rules and, you know, probably managing a team of analysts. There's a lot of companies similar to yours as well that usually have it broken out in strategy uh, and analytics and then operations. Mm -hmm. Both are equally important, but I would say, you know, when I get to choose, I'm all about the strategy and the data (laughs) (laughs) and the product as well. And I know you really have good insights on different products and and vendor products, et cetera, as well as just understanding how it really translates, right? How the data translates to the strategy and the strategy translates to the product. So we kind of got into this a little bit, but why do you stay in fraud? You know, we all kind of get into it by accident, but what's your favorite parts about, you know, being in fraud prevention? Yeah. I I mean, I talked about the bug. I I haven't really shook it yet. I I still (laughs) am interested. There's no anecdote. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think it's a challenge. I don't think any day is the same. It's always, for lack of a better term, a game of chess. You know, you're, you're making moves, you're trying to predict future moves, and you're going to lose a lot. I think you have to get used to that. And I, I, I think that's part of why I feel like I can stay in here is I'm comfortable not winning every single day, but I'm going to win more days than not. Talking about, you know, chances to dabble in other areas, I think fraud gives you that exposure. You know, I work very closely with a number of different departments. We talked about operations. I've worked very closely with all the operations leaders that I've been lucky enough to be partnered with. And supporting what they do and providing feedback where I can, but also taking feedback. That's a big line of defense for me is what we're doing. Is it effective or not? Obviously, the data is going to tell me one thing, but when that phone board lights up or when, when, you know, an agent start raising their hand saying what's going on here, that's another great indicator too. Absolutely. So what do you like most about being a leader in fraud prevention? 
Talk about the challenge. I think the yeah. challenge is great. I like being a problem solver, and this is truly one problem after another. You know, whether the problems are small or large depends on the day. But approaching everything from that perspective of here's the issue, here's what I'm going to do to solve it, or here's what I'm going to bring together just to get the answer, or who's here's who I need to reach out to, to to get myself more informed on what I'm seeing is big. You know, I, I definitely like that. I enjoy teaching. I think one of the the great things about this role in fraud is I, I know you've talked about it before. There's really no education path. You know, the education path is, you know, on the job, you know, it's on the job training that's going to get you to where you need to go. And being able to be a part of that and being able to build new experts out there is is really cool. And it's also fun to kind of see the eyes light up when certain things connect, you know, the, the, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're doing that. Or, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Or, Or there's people like that out there. Those realizations are always interesting to see. And then I talked about exposure earlier. I think this gives me you know, the opportunity to dabble in different areas. It gives me a chance to talk to people in different fields, at different companies, at different levels of different companies and places that a lot of my peers that are in different departments wouldn't get. You know, they're not going to be able to, to have the conversations I'm going to have. They're not going to be able to be put in places that I'm going to have to get into. You know, my, my team has done and seen a lot and, and has had a chance to work with a lot more than they probably would have in, in different areas as well. I, I think fraud is one of those places that you get to talk to a lot of people that, that a lot of people don't want to talk to. Um, <laughs> because usually, you know, you're never giving good news, right? You're always giving less bad news. And, that's mm-hmm. good. and, and I think that exposure is great for them. Absolutely. And I have to say that you are so good at educating other people. And I'm not just trying to stroke your ego here, you know, between my time with trade association, as well as with CNP and the publication, you've done a lot of volunteering and provided being a speaker on panels and presentations. I know you just spoke on account takeovers for the NRF Protect event. You really don't hold back. There's some people who kind of are territorial of their knowledge, almost like they think if they give it away that they're not going to have any value anymore. And I think you and I both agree that it's the opposite. There's so much more value in giving away information and, and providing your experience. I mean, those of us that had to start many years ago before there were all these different fraud providers out there and, and new technology and everything, I think, you know, we had to kind of fight fraud with duct tape and bailing wire and I think there's a lot of things that we've learned along the way that can be helpful to the next generation. And I'll agree that the eyes lighting up are my favorite satisfaction of speaking (laughs) as well. (laughs) I miss in-person events for that reason, among others. (laughs) Hopefully soon, right? Yes, we can only hope. (laughs) So what makes fraud fighting in retail unique? I mean, every vertical is unique, right? Like, I mean, for sure. And we could go into all that, but because you've been in retail for so long, I'd love for you to speak about what makes it so unique. Yeah. So I I think even thinking about like Macy's in particular, you know, we are a brick and mortar and e-commerce company. We we have multiple channels that we can shop with the customer. I think the uniqueness there can can be even in that aspect, you know, e-commerce may or may not be a priority because of, you know, what's going on in, in the physical stores. We see a lot of customers that, that like to shop in different areas. So, so I think we have different views of customers in, in the retail world, especially those that have the brick and mortars. So us in particular, you know, we may issue our own cards. So, so we have Macy's and Bloomingdale's credit cards out there that we issue through partnerships. And that gives it a different approach. You have the liability part, both of it falls on you. So it doesn't matter at that point. You need to not worry about that as much as just stopping the, the fraud, but you also have a lot of challenges in the credit world that you have to work through, whether it be new accounts or identity theft in, in its truest sense. 
you know, account takeover that in, in, in the initial credit sense versus the profile takeover that we call it. So there's different things like that that add complexity. I think even us, our size can be a complexity. You know, there's a lot of different partners that I have to work with to get stuff done. And it's not because we like the complexity. It's because there's just so many things going on. We need to make sure that every potential impact is considered. You know, making a, a simple change to, I'll just call it just a logic flow on the site, potentially. There's four or five different groups that you probably have to work through just to make sure that you don't mess something up. You know, I'm thinking about one thing and, and I try to think about all the impacts, but there are a lot of other people whose jobs are those impacts because they're just as big as what I'm doing. And I would imagine too, the omni-channel piece over the last several years of being able to buy online, pick up in store and vice versa. Yeah. I would imagine that that is a, a definite added complexity beyond what online only companies deal with. Yeah. And you triggered another thought it is there's certain companies out there that are daily shoppers. You know, the customers go there every single day. They go twice a week, whatever it may be. A lot of companies, a lot of retailers are not, you know, they're monthly, they're biannually in some cases. So a lot of the protections that we talk about may not be as applicable for us. You know, we you know, talk about complexity of, of our system the last thing I want to do as Macy's is put something in place that's going to make it tougher for that customer to shop, you know, three, four times a year because they may not remember something or may not know their past, whatever, whatever it may be. So we have these challenges that, you know, maybe the, those bigger companies that I won't name don't have because customers are going there daily. That makes total sense. And actually, I was, you know, thinking as well that in a lot of our conversations, I think something that is probably equally as important to you as fraud prevention and protecting your company as well as customers is the customer experience. And I think that's something that's very important to your company as well as to you as well. It's that continual balance of ensuring that those customers who you know want to shop with you are shopping with you. And, and are able to, they're able to complete their purchase and have a great experience and not have any idea that there's, you know, all these systems behind the scenes that are trying to ensure that they're the owner of the credit card or the payment method. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when, when you talk about priority of our roles, I, I think customer experience has to be at the top because everything you do is going to be impacted by that. We joke, the easiest thing in the world is to stop all the fraud, but then you're going to stop right. all the customers. Even thinking about the customers and if they're negatively impacted, you know, we all want our sales. The last thing we want to do is anything to get in the way of that. We try to make sure that we don't do the best customer fraud experience is no customer fraud experience. You know, they, they don't have anything. They don't get stopped. They don't see customers. I'm sorry. They don't see any sort of indication that anything happened. It's just press submit or I swipe my card and it's over. And, and that's really what we're trying to get to. Right. You want them to think it's just magic, right? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> There's something behind the scene. That reminds me of uh, something another merchant fraud leader has said to me before that they've tried to really change the kind of the impression of their department, not as sales prevention, but as sales enablement. Exactly. So and prevention I, is what we kind of fought through over, over the years. Yes. <laughs> I think you've heard the story before that I had a chief marketing officer that printed out business cards for me that said chief sales prevention officer. <laughs> There's a chief title though. You got, you got the C. <laughs> I did get the C. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly should have kept it as a badge of honor. I ripped them up and threw them away and was like, really? <laughs> but what I failed to really convey back then, and I really didn't have the ability to, is that 
we're trying to prevent the sales that are going to cost our company three times more than that sale amount. We're not trying to prevent the good sales. We know who pays our paycheck. It's not the fraudsters. Those sales take away from the revenue, not add to it. So we know that. (laughs) So everyone loves a good fraud story and we all have them. So I wanted to ask you what your favorite or most memorable fraud story is. Yeah, it's I knew this question was coming and I had a bunch, you know, I had, like I said, I started in asset protection. So I had a number of fun scuffles with customers. My now wife actually visited me when I was in asset protection. At one point, we took a quick break and I happened to see somebody grabbing a baby stroller or a pack to play or whatever, a big box. And, and you know, that the spidey sense goes off and, and I know something's happening. So I kind of walk off and, and see this person in my kind of my peripheral following me out with this box. And I kind of push my then girlfriend, now wife aside and, and kind of got her out of the way and then turned to confront the guy. And sure enough, he was trying to steal it. And sure enough, he jumped over that box and, and went after me. So I had a little bit of a scuffle in front of my wife. And that was probably the last time she visited me at work. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's a lot, you know, we, we've heard stories of identity theft where people, you know, the the mules, the people that go and pick up the information have to go to some random karaoke bar and go to the back to some little old lady who has a a stack of credit profile that she'll hand over and, you know, working with Homeland Security on stuff related to terrorism and, and terrorism, potentially related purchases, all sorts of fun stuff. Our version of fun isn't everyone else's it, version of fun. Maybe fun's not the best word. Oh, no, I agree. It's fun. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It's fun. I'm just saying our definition isn't the same as everyone <laughs> else's. And I was going to say, too, I bet your wife was relieved when you went from fighting bad guys in person to oh, fighting yeah. them through the computer screen, especially yeah. after that. <laughs> it was funny. After that, you know, I, I had a radio on me. I go to grab the radio to tell my partner what was going on and kind of giving the, the information on the guy because he took off. He jumped in the trunk of a car and closed the trunk, which I thought was hilarious. Um, so <laughs> was I'm it his car or his friend's car? Or, like, did he know it, the car? It was a friend's car. It was it, oh, okay. it took off. It was like getaway car. The, <laughs> <laughs> I get the plate out there and I turn around and look at her and her jaw is still at the floor. Like, what just happened? I'm like, oh, yeah, you're still here. Oh, yeah. Different side of my brain. <laughs> right, right. Flip it <laughs> off. Go okay. into, right, you go into that mode. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, she got to see that you're dedicated no matter what. Hopefully she wasn't saying anything super interesting at the time. As a wife slash girlfriend, it's like, oh, so you really weren't paying attention to me. You were looking (laughs) at your peripheral. Hmm. Multitasking. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice save. (laughs) Right. So I mentioned that you've been a really, you know, great part of this, you know, bi-weekly call that I have had the privilege of facilitating and hosting for a lot of large retailers, we had no idea that COVID was even, I mean, we scheduled the call right before COVID was even starting, but we were starting, you guys were all starting to see a lot of you know, claims of packages not being received that felt weird. And then it turned into the refunding fraud and mm-hmm. all that. And I've told that story on past episodes, but you know, the last eight months with the impacts of COVID have created unique challenges for all industries and business models. But what has been the biggest challenge or challenges you and your team have faced during this time? There's been a lot. I think going from a, a place where we were all sitting in the same office, we, we've had to adjust just to working remote. You know, we, we had to pull everybody who did not have external connections and get them set up with the proper access and controls and have to make sure they can find the right place to work. You know, and that was just a matter of a few days. So, and, and like I talked about our complexity of a company our size, it's not just a simple, hey, by the way, I'm going to work from home today. 
it was it was an undertaking and and the team did a great job of getting that up and running but with that you know just getting used to you know this kind of stuff uh, of you know seeing each other through videos getting webcams out to people so it looks a little more familiar you know i, I think Remote's been a challenge for all of us, you know, you know, no matter how introverted you are, there's some benefit to being around people, even if you're all head down doing data work, it's, there's still some camaraderie there. So finding ways to, to do something like that, you know, my team, one of the guys that, that we work with, he just started a bi-weekly coffee talk. It's just a half an hour, we all get on a, a cameras and, and just talk about what's going on. And there's no work related, it's during the work day, but it allows us to just build that connection that we get in those, you know, quick drive-bys we do. The other thing, and I think this is something that is probably going to continue is is the new customers that we saw when everything went to shut down or quarantine. I, I think we saw a lot of customers that were shopping in brick and mortars turn online. And, and that's mm. great. And you know, we love new customers and we love giving them the convenience, but they're new. You know, they're new to online, they're new to us. And and then even some of the behaviors we were seeing were new too, whether it be they weren't used to the interactions, or even in some cases, people had a lot more time on their hands. So people that may have not felt the need to call right away about stuff are, are calling or letting us know, you know, hitting us up quite a bit more than, than I would say on average for, for stuff like that. So getting used to the new customers and even the behaviors of those customers and the new behaviors for those that we had created the challenge in its own. And then just in general, you talked a little bit about returns, but I think just supply chain was impacted. You know, as, as we all decided to work from home, as we all worked remote and, and as everybody really focused on just, uh, you know, keeping the lights on for their family, supply chains had to be adjusted. You know, we saw that distribution centers, we saw that large shipping companies had to prioritize their shipments. So things got delayed. You know, the important stuff got out in time and, and the stuff that wasn't quite as critical, you know, was a little later. And customers, in some cases, weren't as comfortable with those delays and would reach out and say, hey, I didn't get this. Or uh, we saw a lot of stuff like that. Or even in some cases, stuff just got lost. There was a lot more in the supply chain and then customers wouldn't get what they need. So, you know, talking about returns, we, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of trees in that forest of returns where we saw a lot of planes in that area where it was just a product of the situation we were in. It wasn't deceptive, but it was in with that, which made finding the deceptive stuff that much harder. Absolutely. And I know, especially for those of you with physical items to ship out, it was especially a challenge the first few months because your warehouse needed to socially distance. So mm-hmm. you had to have less people in the logistics center or the fulfillment center um, still doing similar, if not higher volume of orders. And then all the way down the supply chain from the shipping partners, et cetera. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I know that that's, you know, a concern for retailers as well for the holidays too, just with higher volume becomes more trees, so to speak, in the forest. And it's harder to know which ones are deceptive and which ones are real for sure. So let's end this portion on a high note. What do you feel like have been successes of you and your team over this time? Because you really have to adapt and adjust and Mm -hmm. change. I actually already have at least one that I'm thinking of that if you don't say I'll be adding. But what do you feel are the you know successes of you and your team in the last several months? I think it's been really cool to watch us as a team and, and our whole fraud department step up. I, I think we all took ownership of what we were doing. You know, we felt like we were important to the the overall business. We we were you know treated as such, thankfully. So we took ownership of that and we did really well. I think if I were to look at where we were this time last year and this year. As weird as it is to say, I think we're even more efficient right now. I think we're we're kind of running 
about as fast as we could. I, I think we've kind of taken that and gone with it. You know, our metrics, our KPIs are, are probably about as good as they've been. You know, I, I can't complain. So it's been a difficult time, but my team's really stepped up and they've done a fantastic job of getting things moving. I'm not sure I've had a great success, but it's been great watching them have this great success. Well, that is an amazing answer from a very humble people leader. But as you shake your head, no, and I shake my head, yes. Um, But another success I know I got to witness kind of, I mean, not firsthand, more like second or third, is really you guys adjusting to curbside pickup so fast Mm -hmm. for the stores. I mean, there really was no manual or handbook for that. And you and your team really figured that out quickly. How can you do that in a way that you're protecting the company as much as possible from people you know, using a fraudulent card and just going to go pick it up so they don't have to create a drop address, but also about really prioritizing the customer experience on that and not making it a challenge for them and understanding their concerns about picking something up from someone wearing a mask and, you know, all those things. I mean, that's something that no one's ever had to try to figure out. And I think Mm -hmm. you and your team really were able to advise your company in that in a way that they really appreciated your input. And it was pretty quick. You guys turned that around in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I think we were a small part of that machine. I think our CEO mentioned it actually in one of his last overall updates to you know the public. And the speed that they turned that around was amazing. So you know, the last thing that we want to do as a team is get in the way of that. You talked about the sales prevention department. You, the last thing we want to do is be an inhibitor. So whatever we can do to support something like that, especially when we're challenged as a, a company or as an industry and in trying to figure out ways to make sure we can get items to the customers that want them, you know, we're going to do what we can to stay in the line. Well, I definitely got to see that. And I, I thought you guys did a really impressive job. So, you know, honestly, just continuing this conversation, something that I think you've done really well is working with other departments and you've kind of referenced that already, but getting buy-in and collaborating with other departments within an e-commerce organization is a challenge for so many fraud leaders and their departments. And I have theories on why I think a lot of us care deeply about the details, myself very much included, and other departments you know, are a little more high level or they don't understand why the details matter or what the details are, or you know, they think that fraud is trying to prevent sales and get in their way. So they try to cut you out. How have you approached this challenge within Macy's? I treat it like a public relations campaign. I, I think when you look at the history of fraud, we, we've always been relatively seeker. Right? You, you called, you know, we mentioned the, the person behind the curtain, and there's a lot of that, especially for those of us that have been around a while. And, and even those of us that came more from kind of the law enforcement side of things, where we tended to keep things a little closer to us. So public relations has been big, you know, going out, meeting my partners building those partnerships and, and they have to be two way, you know, what, what can I do to help you from a fraud side and, and doing some of those favors to help out, you know, stepping outside of your normal job to support, you know, some simple stuff goes a long way in the future. And, and transparency, I think is the other piece being transparent in the data and the metrics and the performance. If things aren't going great, tell them, Hey, we're not doing well. We're going to need to be a little more aggressive. And this is what it means to you. Getting out there in front of them and telling them what it means to them, whether it be finance, sales, marketing, whoever it may be, is going to help soften the blow when it does come to fruition. And if anything, it helps bring up the conversation. If the team says, no, that doesn't work for us because X, Y, and Z, now you have a conversation on what's more important. And if you need to agree on what's important, and if the company as a whole is willing to sacrifice more loss, so be it. 
but we need to agree to that. And, and I kind of go back to the public relations piece, turning the image of fraud away from stopping sales or stopping fraud or whatever they think you're doing and, and turning it more into a risk management approach. My job is to manage the risk to the level that we're all comfortable, whether it be from a financial side, from a sales side, whatever it is, we have an acceptable amount of loss because it's a cost of doing business. And my job is to get that as low as possible, but also not sacrifice things where we're willing to accept some loss to do, whether it be opening up new channels of transacting that may be a little more risky. If it's going to open us up to new customers and we're willing to accept a bit more loss, I'm all for it. I just want the right people to know that it's going to happen. And I want to be able to show the performance so that if we do decide to act on it, we have good data and good understanding of what the impact would be if we were to make a change. It's almost like you're a meteorologist. A as far, yeah, I, I've made that connection before, or you know, made that analogy before, but kind of saying, okay, we can do this, but there may be a hurricane coming, mm-hmm. you know, through here. Do we have boards to put up over the windows? You know, kind of that. Yeah. Really, I'm probably running the analogy a little too long, but <laughs> no, but but I think hopefully we're right a little more than the fifty percent that they are. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I actually had a client. After I left, I found out that they were starting to call me the fraud psychic (laughs) (laughs) because I had said, if you do X, Y is going to happen. And someone within the company, once I was gone, was one, it really pushed for wanting to do it because in their region, that had worked really well. And I tried to say in the US, it's very different, but you know, okay. And I found out later that three weeks into it, they were like, oh, exactly what Carice said would happen, happened. She's a psychic in front. <laughs> and the employee that reached out and told me that, I was like, I'm not a psychic. I've just been doing this a long time. And it's pretty predictable after a while. Yeah. You have to be wired with a little bit of cynicism, but yeah, yeah it, it is. A little. <laughs> a little, at least a little. I was going to say, some of it comes with the job though, because when you see right. all the stuff that we do and kind of like, you know... Just sometimes you start to question humanity. <laughs> yeah, actually, we, we talked about training earlier. It, it's yeah. almost like it, at the end of the training, you have to almost readjust again to say, okay, now that you've seen the bad side, side of things, I want to remind you, everybody's right. not bad. Yes, yes. And, and I think you, you almost kind of flip their mind to, oh my goodness, this is happening. And they look at everybody through that lens. It's almost like it's flipping back. Okay, now that I've exposed you to this world, let's go back to reality. Everybody's actually good. There's just a few people doing this. Right. I think it's easy for people who are looking in a queue all day long, especially like those people who are doing manual reviews to forget that they're only looking at like half a percent of the entire volume that goes through your website, because it's easy to think this is all that's coming through and it's horrible. And it's like, actually, you're only seeing a very, very small part. (laughs) You kind of have to remember that too, uh, with strategy as well, right? Like, Oh yeah, we have balance. It, it goes right back to the balance, like we've you know talked about before for sure. So, how did you first begin aligning partnerships with other teams, and how did you kind of identify what teams would be the best to work with? So, uh, for me, I, I think I was in a different place where I had to rebuild some bridges. It wasn't that it was completely broken, but I think we had just kind of isolated ourselves as a team. So, it was more just going back and partnering. It was being I, I kind of call it loud and consistent. So you talked about being able to predict. And sometimes when you have those predictions or when you have that knowledge, make sure that I'm loud and I'm consistent what I'm saying. And it's data-driven. In our world and, and with a lot of the partners that we have to work with, I would say nine out of 10 are going to be data-centric. So 
being able to present things in data-centric ways and in ways that they understand it and ways that impact them, it really helped in opening the conversation around fraud's impact to their group. So if it was customer service or if it was finance or if it was information security or, or marketing, here's what we're doing. Here's what it looks like. Here's how it impacts you. And then going from there, it was really more of a dialogue. I think the best approach here is not to have an ask. I think if, if any ask is, is what can I do to help you at this point so that when the put, when the time does come, there's a good conversation and, and there's a, a good relationship already built. And then the other piece, or I guess two kind of pieces that I would say are consistent is showing the right level of urgency in situations. Because mm-hmm. if you're in a situation where you have to build partnerships on the fly, you want to be urgent like everyone else. You know, the, their problem is just as important and sometimes it's it's your problem too. And then when you're pressed to act, you know, make sure you're decisive, make sure that you're, you're strong in what you say. And this is a huge opportunity. And this is probably kind of the culmination of all this is building the trust. You know, all of this is really building trust that we're all thinking about the company in the same way. The company is sales driven. We, we want sales. We want to make sure the right sales, which is my job, but your job is to get those sales. We need to work together to make sure that we're not stepping on each other's toes. Oh my gosh. I hope some people like rewind that and listen to it again. That was really well said. I think it's easy for us to, you know, go into chicken little mode as far as like Mm -hmm. the sky is falling. Having the right sense of urgency is so key as well as first saying, what can I do for you? And, you know, there is a lot that fraud can do for other people. I mean, you privy to a lot of data about Mm -hmm. users as well as how they're responding to marketing campaigns or if they're learning to abuse the system or you know, all these different ways. And I really think that that's just a really good skill to have in business in general, not going to people and saying, what can you do for me? But what can I do for you? I think that's been one of the not so secret secrets about my career path. I mean, and every business coach I've ever had is like, why do you do so much for free? And I'm like, because A, I love these people, but B, like it really does benefit me as well to be able to know, you know, what their issues are on the ground. So I couldn't agree more with that. And I think it really works well within an organization too. So how has working with other teams helped your company fight fraud or how your company fights fraud? Yeah, I think I touched on it a little bit. You know, we're not seen as inhibitor anymore. We're, we're seen as a partner, you know, when it comes to conversations, when it comes to new initiatives, when it comes to new technology, fraud has a seat at the table which, you know, it took us time to get there, but it's really big. You know, you talked about curbside. You know, if curbside were to happen three years ago, we probably wouldn't have been thought about. And it's not because we didn't have great partners. It was because the process was a little different and and the flow wouldn't have considered us. But now that we build these relationships, now that there's a good understanding and good awareness of of this kind of stuff and, and, and who we are and what we can do to help, they reached out to us and, and we had the conversation. Thankfully, it was, uh, yeah, let, let me step in line, see how we can help. But at least they, they came to us and, and we had a good conversation about what curbside was and had a lot more forward-thinking conversations around if we would expand, if it was to sustain, here's what we could do to, to continue to improve. But it really helps us have these conversations in front rather than at the end or in the middle or wherever we can become a, a big blocker for projects. It is so much better. And I I think that is the goal of a lot of fraud managers is don't always know how to take that first step or or to really navigate that base, especially because different departments have different languages and and different things they care about. How have you navigated that part of it? 
I, I think you, you talked about languages, and I think that's probably the, the biggest thing is we mentioned PR campaign. You go and introduce yourself. You work with these departments. And part of what you're doing is clearly building the relationship, but it's also understanding what they do and what drives them. You know, there, there are people that are, are visual. There are people that are number driven. There's people that want things real short. They, they want to know the bullet points. And, and if I want the details, I can dig in deeper later. There's some people that just love the details and that's where they're going to get their information. So, you know, I, I could say that different departments have specific things, but I think it's individual based. You know, there, there are types of people that fall into certain departments, but it doesn't mean that that's the specific way you talk to everybody in that department. There's the image of the IT person out there developing, but that that's not everybody. You know, everybody's not focused on the details. There's some people that enjoy the high level stuff and some people that, that want it in a certain way that like visual stuff. It's really making sure that when you come to them with a need and ask or information, it's going to be translatable to what they understand. You don't want to spend a lot of time translating because it's going to take away from the message. If you can give them something that's clearly catered to them and clearly got some form of information or action for them, I think it's really going to help make their part that much easier. And at the end of the day, fraud's just not their, their primary role. That's our primary role. That Their job is something else. This is additional piece that, that may or may not be part of what they're doing on a day-to-day. So well said. I've mentioned before understanding what the key performance indicators are, the KPIs are for other departments. For instance, marketing cares about conversion and, and the marketing campaigns and how well it works, et cetera. But I think really you have a really good point of being able to understand the individual and how to communicate to them best where they'll learn, but also they'll appreciate your approach more because that's the way that they communicate. I think that's very well said. I'm I'm really glad you said it. What are some things that you would, if you you were talking and and you do often talk to other uh, retailers or other merchants in general, what would you say about this that you know might help them a little bit more? I mean, you've said so much, but any other kind of takeaways that you would implore or, or not implore, but suggest that other fraud fighters do to be able to work better with other departments or executives? I, I think, you know, obviously understanding the, the partners and going out in your PR campaign, I think it is probably number one. And, and I'll continue to beat up on that one. But I think it's really important is making sure you're in control of the image of your department. The other one I would recommend is things like this. You know, there's plenty of other merchants, plenty of other partners out there that have gone through things like this or that have good relationships or even thinking about newer companies that are just building their fraud program have established departments that probably have a good idea of what works and what doesn't, or at least can give you, you know, kind of a nudge in the right direction. I think collaborating with others, you know, you have the calls. There's plenty of conferences and industry groups out there that are great avenues to learn about this. I think those are probably the two big things for me. It's getting your voice out there within your company and almost like kind of bringing it in from your partners and other merchants and pushing it out with within your company through PR. Amazing. Well, I just can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day and your busy job to uh, share just an inkling of your wisdom and experience. And I really hope to have you back soon to talk about more subjects. I I really enjoy talking with you and I I know that this will be a very popular episode. So thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. I really, I've had fun. Good. I'm glad.
Thanks so much. All right, thanks. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.